Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Today's fee-for-service dentist podcast brought to you by Kettenbach Dental. New from Kettenbach, imagine one product for every cementation protocol. A hydrophilic adhesive cement and a hydrophobic core buildup material combined into one product, Visalis Semcore. Compatible with all substrates, all restorative designs. Its unique technology permanently bonds materials using a dual curing phase transfer catalyst. It also features easy peel cleanup, saving time and stress when removing excess cement. Experience why dentists bond permanently with Kettenbach's all-in-one adhesive cement and core buildup, the Salus Semcor. Call 877-532-2123 or visit us on the web, Kettenbach, K-E-T-T-E-N-B-A-C-H-D-E-N-T.us. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe that the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe that the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Welcome to the Fee-for-Service Practice. Dr. Sonny Spira here and our special guest, you may know him, he does post a fair amount on the fee-for-service Facebook group, as well as others, is Dr. Mitchell Rubenstein. Let me give you a little bit of background first. Uh, He practices restorative dentistry in a full fee-for-service practice in New York City. Yes, it can be done in big cities. He is the education director for New York County Dental Society and chairs the technology committee for the New York State Dental Association. He's also on the standards committee and informatics in the American Dental Association. He's a 1990 grad, 1992 graduate of University of Penn, and he's had various jobs and careers, and as he said, off-air, he's done it all. So let's welcome Dr. Mitchell Rubenstein. How are you, Mitch? I'm good, Sonny. How are you? Nice, nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Fantastic. I had to pursue you, man, like a dog on a bone. <laughs> <laughs> that's not because i didn't want to do it just because I'm a, i can be a little disorganized and it takes me a little, a little time to do these things but i've really been wanting to wanting to talk to you about some of this stuff i really have been well when a disorganized person tries to reach another disorganized person it's it's the, the theory of randomness right it ain't so, so we got it we did it so it's, uh, we're absolutely june and the day is gorgeous so 
Let's start right off. Talk a little bit. Let's get right into it, please. Tell us a little bit why dentistry. Why did you go to Penn? Tell us a little bit of your background. Well, I uh, I decided I wanted to be a dentist sometime at some point in college. It was, and I had was originally on a path to probably going to uh, to medical school. But then one summer, I spent uh, a summer working for my father in his practice as a dental assistant because my dad. Uh, uh, was a general dentist, a restorative dentist. And okay. when I did that, uh, now I, like many rebellious kids, I had no interest in, in anything that my parents were doing. And it, so I didn't really think about dentistry that much. Sounds but, like my son. <laughs> yeah. But what I did know was my dad was always somebody who came home from work, you know, happy about work and looked forward to going back to the office, you know, when he, you know, you know, after we got after a weekend or after a vacation, he was just very happy doing what he did. And so when I worked for him, I sort of, you know, got a sense of what some of these things were and the dentistry really wasn't what I thought it was. And it was a bunch of things that I didn't think it, it was. And that was when I really started pursuing it. I went after college, I went to Penn mostly because that was just the school, you know, when I went on interviews, you know, that was the place that clicked the most for me. That Obviously, this was 30 years ago, a little more actually. Uh, and the issues now of this, you know, the massive run up in costs of a dental education did. I mean, it was still expensive, but uh, but it wasn't prohibitive to the point where, you know, you would literally make a choice of where you would go or where you would avoid just based on how much how much it cost. Where did you uh, where was undergrad? Where did you go? Uh, undergraduate, I went to Brandeis, which is a small college in yeah. Massachusetts. Yep. Uh, and uh, I was there all four years and I did some writing on the, the paper. I was I was always in, in, into writing mostly. And I did some, you know, I got on with a couple of faculty people doing some research and stuff like that. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a nice four years of college. I like Brandeis. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. Now, where, where was home for you? Where did your dad's practice? Uh, my dad's practice was always in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, I uh, was born in Manhattan, and we lived there until I was about well, six or seven years old. Then we moved to New Jersey. Uh, which never really took for me. So even years later, I was you know happy to leave New Jersey, uh, but I still have a lot of friends who practice there. So I, I get back there a lot. Okay, so you grew up pretty much in the city, outside the city suburbs. Yeah, Brandeis State area. Brandeis up near Boston, isn't it? Yeah, it's about ten miles west of Boston, a little town called Waltham, yeah. uh, which used to have nothing. In it of note, really, except there used to be a company called the Waltham Watch Company that made watches. And uh, I didn't even know about that until I went to school in Waltham. But, uh, but Brandeis was uh, it's a small college, but it had a lot of different things available. You know, a lot of a lot of interesting science programs, a lot of cool professors. It was a very it was a very progressive uh, campus, you know, uh, for for 1990. So what now what were you thinking? Because we're not far off. I graduated dental school 89. You're 92. So. So what was your intention when you first started college? Because you said you didn't think dentistry till in college. So what was your intention going there? Uh, I suppose if I, if somebody as a freshman or sophomore 
told me I had to pick what I was going to end up doing. I figured I was probably going to medical school. I have other people in my family who, in addition to being dentists, are, are physicians of various types. And I always sort of enjoyed, you know, medical stuff. And uh, I, I thought I would like doing it. And like a lot of young people, I really hadn't thought that much about what I was going to do. You really didn't have to back then. Uh, not quite as much pressure, you know, back then to decide so quickly what you, what you wanted to do. Other things I was considering was uh, being a writer. I enjoyed writing. Uh, I enjoyed photography, taking photographs, and doing things like that. So I considered a career in photography. But uh, I, I always had a feeling it was I was heading for one profession or another. But until I worked for my dad in his office, really seeing, you know, what dentistry was, if anybody asked me, and you have a father who's a dentist, and people always ask, so are you going to go into, into practice with your father? Or are you going to be a dentist? The answer was always, no, definitely not. I'm not doing that. You know, that was my teenage self answering yeah. my dad uh, until I realized that, you know what? It, despite all my resistance, this is a pretty cool job. <laughs> you get to go and play with stuff and do arts and craft. I mean, I didn't understand any of the business aspects of it yet or some of the struggles, but I saw that my dad was doing like really cool stuff. And I, uh, before and after, I mean, he was very great restorative dentist. He did a lot of reconstructive stuff. I, I would see before and after stuff. And I would think, wow, I, I had no idea my dad would do, was doing such cool stuff. It was great. All right. So, so you get, you get the idea in college and then uh, yeah. go to Penn. Now, right. when you're, when you're in Penn, did any of the special specialties, uh, did you flirt with any of them? Did yes. any of them catch your uh, I considered throughout dental school after I got into the clinic, uh, going into endodontics because there was some things about the precision of it, about the, the very small gap between good and bad, you know, right. you know, that really appealed to me because it was, you know, I always built models as a child, airplanes, cars, boats, you know, I, and it just appealed to me this level of precision. And also, uh, this, you know, this, there was sort of a bit of witchcraft about it that was different than other types of dentistry. There, were, there was something, even at that young age, I could tell there was something about endodontics that was just not quantifiable. There were some things where everything looked like everything was fine and the patient was still in pain. There was a problem. There were other cases, and we see them all the time, where the endo looks terrible. And yet the patient has had the tooth for 40 years and everything's fine. And, you, you know, so there was... I, I think it was that I didn't really understand that. And I, and I, and I felt there was something really interesting there. Uh, but in the end, I liked everything in dentistry a little. And yeah. so I, I, I really did. And I couldn't confine myself to that. So, I, I mean, as a general dentist, I do a lot of, a lot of endo. Uh, I know my limits, but I'm, I'm pretty good at it. And, uh, and nowadays, you can learn what you want in dentistry. If you decide to get good at something, you can do it, whether you're a general dentist or not, if you make the commitment to it you, you, you have a very strong creative side so i'm going to say you're a little more right brain that that may be i i my wife would would, would agree with you especially when i forget to do any of the dozen things that i'm supposed to do and i'm I, you know and, and uh yeah i think I'm, I'm more of a creative person i think my dad was the opposite he was totally left brain person he was extremely analytical extremely precise and maybe not as quick to see you know outside this little uh field that he was working in, you know, some of the other things I always thought he should have taught. Uh, he said, I'll teach you. And then you teach stuff to other, if, if you want, it wasn't for him. He just wanted to be in his office working. Well, I think being forgetful as a husband makes you a good husband. I think that's, a, that's absolutely essential. Otherwise you're just not going to make it. So good for Tell you. Tell my wife that. 
I, yeah. I, I agree with you. <laughs> Tell me, my wife will be laughing. Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so let's talk about it. So you graduate yeah. um, from Penn. Did you do residency? What did you do? What was your next? Yes. I did a general practice residency at Albert Einstein Hospital in the Bronx, okay, yep, which is really yep. part of Jacoby, part of Bronx Municipal Hospital. This is before it was taken over by Montefiore. And I had one of my great uh, mentors that I met there. His name was, is Victor Badner. And he was the director of the program. He was a person who was a general dentist. The program director he was also board certified in dental public health, one of the few people who was. And he was the person who really really taught me that, you know, just because you read something that's written down somewhere, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You have to really be analytical about what you believe. And uh, especially, you know, just because it's a research paper, even you got to read it, you got to see what's really in it. I learned that from him. And I, every day, there's something where I apply some of that. And uh, it was a good program. I spent two years there. Uh, And then, yeah, the second year, they'd always have one person back that either wanted to, that they... Thought was capable to sort of be, you could call it a chief resident. It wasn't really like being a chief resident, but you were sort of in a, a semi-supervisory position. I enjoyed that too, and that gave me a, at that point I could moonlight a little bit. So that was when I started working in this office in the Bronx. That was uh, almost a completely uh, insurance-driven, mostly uh, union plans, HMO. Uh, you know, very very uh, uh, diverse group of uh, of plans that they took. All right. So, I mean, I, I, Albert Einstein, if I remember correctly, because when we, we had the match program and a couple of my buddies from New York, they, they went through there and uh, said it was, incre- was incredibly busy, right? It was a very busy hospital. The dental program was sort of peripheral to it, but attached. In other words, we would see patients in the emergency room, obviously, with the oral surgery residents. Yeah. It was... Uh, it was a trauma center. So, you know, the worst of the worst things would come in there. And if you, so even if you just hung around in the ER after you were done, you know, suturing a lip laceration or something, you would see stuff that was, you know, that would stay with you. That was, uh, and you would see people also, the doctors who worked for the residents, the attendants, you would see people, you know, you know, that you could really, you know, admire and learn things from as far as dealing with patients, even though it was, you know, medicine and not dentistry. I, I learned a lot there. Gotcha. Okay, so now you start moonlighting. Was there was yeah. there ever a thought, hey, let me, because you're in the Bronx. I mean, what what would it take to go down to work for your dad? Was that ever a discussion? Part-time? Yes, uh, it was. Um, neither we were both a little cagey. We didn't want to commit to it because he didn't want to feel. He didn't want me to feel like I was trapped. Like. I have to follow in his footsteps. And, and frankly, I didn't want to feel that either. I, at this point, I knew there was a lot to do in dentistry and I was uh, still not totally off the, the end of things. So I, I didn't know. I, I just wanted to see as much as I could. So there was somebody, uh, a dentist, a general dentist named Stephen Gould, uh, who was uh, long since retired, uh, had a, a very busy uh union Medicaid and insurance practice in co-op city in the Bronx. He had an ad in the paper and I just went in there not really knowing anything. This was, these were the first people that I worked on without some educational, you know, umbrella over me. So so, uh, it was busy. busy. Talk about the makeup of that practice. How much were you working? Okay. I was working there two days a week, uh, Fridays and Saturdays, uh, which were the days that he didn't want to work which is fine. And uh, I would see it so was not a long day, but yeah. Go ahead. So you, were, you were there by yourself. I was there by myself. 
he he was there with me for a couple of days, you know, just to make sure that I wasn't like a crazy person or something. But then he was he was definitely a hands off guy. As long as there were no complaints coming in and as, as long as things were running smoothly, he didn't really care that much what I did. Uh, and his the office was mostly run by the auxiliaries, the, you know, the de- front desk person in this. And they would sort of take this approach that young dentists often find themselves subject to, which is the more experienced staff sort of tell you what to do and tell you, oh, that's not how we do things here, or that is how we do things here. And, you know, and some of the things, yeah. yeah. Uh, And so I had to learn how to, I knew I had to learn how to work faster. Uh, I wasn't sure what the limits are on that. Turns out the limits are a little bit, not quite as fast as, as it was being done in this office. Uh, you know, but you have to sort of feel your way through these things. Uh, what I did see was that everything was controlled by the insurance. Everything from the schedule, the treatment planning, how patients were interacted with, everything was under the assumption that we were sort of, it was us and the insurance company and the patient was sort of, you know, in some ways peripheral to that, you know, unfortunately. If anything was being treated and planned, the only question was, what's the code? You know, how much time is it going to take? What are they going to reimburse for that? What are they, you know, that was the, that was the overarching theme of what was doing. It was not starting with the patient and figuring out what they needed and figuring out how to make that work. And I never really liked that, but I knew this was, this was a, a successful office in, in some, it wasn't the type of office in the end that I wanted to be, you know, associated with, but I learned a lot from him. I don't, I'm not going to badmouth the guy. It was a different kind of practice. Uh, and he was, a, he was a good guy. Okay. So now you're learning. Okay. Speed. Did, did you, did you learn some of the business? Because it sounds like it was kind of similar to the residency program a little bit. Yes. Um, I learned business. He did uh, sort of, he didn't talk to me about anything clinical. Mostly it was business related stuff. A lot of it was, you know, in his opinion, how to talk to patients, how to get patients to accept treatment, you know, and, you know, and so I did learn some of the things that you have to learn about how to see things from somebody else's point of view, Uh, you know, but uh, most of it again was related to what somebody's insured. There was never really, even a, a framework for dealing with somebody who was going to be paying you themselves for, for the care. And so what I found was I didn't really have a sense of the value of what I was doing. I mean, I knew I would, I knew what I would get paid for it. You know, if I was doing, you know, an endo, I ended up doing all his endo, of course, because I like doing endo, uh, but how to determine what it was worth. I, I didn't know. I, I just, I just knew what it with this insurance company or that insurance company or Medicaid might, might pay for it. And, and that was difficult for me because as you're trying to decide how to get better, how much time to put in something, what new toys and, and things to buy to make your work better, if you don't understand what the real value of it is, you know, you, that's very difficult, you know, but I did get faster. I did understand what things, you know, would result in a patient being unhappy with you afterwards. Uh, and so I learned how to avoid some of those things. And, and that's part of seeing things from another person's point of view. So those things, the nuts and bolts of how to get from one treatment room to another and to interact with a lot of patients quickly, you know, and your residency is like that too, in some ways, especially when you're dealing with emergency stuff. So some of that sort of clicked with what I had already learned. Uh, but the environment was high, it was a high stress environment and I'm not a high stress person, 
you know, there are so many things in practice that are not just how much money are you making, how many patients you see, you know, but how do I feel at the beginning of the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day, I went home from that place stressed all the time. Uh, and I was making money, which is fine, but I didn't really look forward to going there that much. <laughs> so you did two days a week. And then two days when, a week. when you finished your residency program, did you up yeah. that? What did you do? What, what other? Oh, I stayed there. I stayed there two days a week. Uh, when I finished my residency program and I, uh, took a job that was advertised in the paper. There was a, a, a service organization in Queens, New York called, uh, PSCH, the initials. It was, it was something to do with, uh, services for the handicapped. That was a word that you used back then. We don't use that word anymore, but it was, you know, that was, uh, the word that was used then. It was a place that treated, uh, patients who were developmentally disabled, autistic, yeah. and they had a medical clinic, they had social services, and they wanted to start a dental clinic. And I had some experience with that type of dentistry because at Einstein, we had the Rose Kennedy Center at the time, which was one at the time, one of the great facilities for learning special care dentistry, uh, which I didn't really appreciate at the time, but, but now I do. Uh, and so they hired me. They hired me to sort of help design and put together and build a, you know, you know, a four chair clinic and hire a couple of hygienists and another dentist. And I did that, uh, three or four days a week for six months or so. And then I cut it back to about two days a week. Cause then I went into practice with my dad two days a week. So I was doing the Medicaid thing two days a week, my dad two days a week, and then two, you know, another couple of days, depending on whether I was going to work six days or so. for a while I was working seven days a week, actually, which was pretty rough. Wow. Uh, and then I cut it back to six. So, so it was this, like two, 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 and two. This PSCH though, you, yeah. were, you were the director, right? That's what you said. Yes, I was. So that's, uh, that's more responsibility than just treating patients, right? It, it was, uh, a lot of it was administrative and I learned, I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of where the dollars go in a practice. That was helpful to me also because the budget for the clinic, I mean, it came from, you know, I mean, in that type of dentistry and that type of clinic, Medicaid pays per visit. So there was an X number of dollars per visit. And whether I did a crown on somebody or I did a filling or a profi, it was basically per visit. And that's almost like, uh, like capitation almost, you know, but, uh, but I wasn't, yeah. And that kind of thing, you, I was getting a salary, so it didn't matter, you know, t salary, we have, my, my money didn't change, you know, no matter what I did, you know, it was just, there was a lot of people that needed to be seen there. And, uh, it was, uh, it was a good place, but, I, but yeah, I, it was a lot of administrative stuff and I was in, I had to hire and fire people and, uh, mm -hmm. and they, they, you know, and so I, I, I did learn some things there that yeah, that's a lot to learn. me later on. Yeah, yeah uh, I was lucky. You can, I, yeah, you could carry was, a lot of that forward. That's good yes, stuff. I was very lucky to get that. And yeah. I, I stayed there even when I started cutting back. And uh, later on, I cut back to one day a week in the Bronx. And then and then after I'd been working with my dad in his mostly fee-for-service practice, and the, that was sort of incompatible with the, the, the Bronx practice. And the guy ended up uh, firing me, which I couldn't really blame him because I wasn't really suitable for him any longer. And, uh, uh, I, I was spending too much time on things. I wasn't, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was talking to patients a lot about things that would never be paid for by their insurance to see if they were interested in doing them things that were unrewarding financially. And at the time in any other way, because generally people 
would not want to do them. They only wanted to do what their insurance covered. Uh, we'll talk about a little more about that in a little bit. So then I was working with, my, you know, two days a week with my dad and then uh, three days a week in the clinic. And I, I sort of weaned off of that. And after maybe 10 years, I was working full-time with my dad as his associate. Okay. So 10, 10 years until you became full-time with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so how old, how old is your dad at this point? Uh, my dad passed away years ago, a few years ago. Uh, he passed away at the age of 86 uh, and he retired. I think it was 2011, 2012 is when he finally retired from dentistry, but he would still come in and hang out and teach me stuff. And, you know, he, cause he, you know, he didn't have a lot of other things in his life other than dentistry. And he was happy with that. Wouldn't make me happy, but it made him happy. He was a very happy guy. He, I think at the end of his life, I don't think he would have looked back and said he wanted to change anything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there was a, a fairly long period of time where I was doing these other things besides his practice. And, uh, uh, you know, so I had, cause it took me a while to figure out, you know, whether that was really what I wanted to do. And then when I committed to it, I knew I would eventually just improve the practice, buy him out eventually. And, you know, and do what he did. I just hire him and let him kind of work when he wanted to, you know, which was. But, but my, my question is, do you yeah. remember how old he was approximately when you went, when your 10 years are up and you go yeah. full, full time with your dad, approximately how old is he? He was in his mid sixties, mid six point, maybe 65 or 64 years and, old. And his plan wasn't really to slow down. He mm -hmm. was still, he was still cooking, right? He was still cooking. And uh, even though when I went in there full time, he cut back to, I think, three days a week, but he still okay. had three busy days. Right. Uh, he always liked coming in. I thought I would talk him into doing some, maybe even doing some volunteering or maybe even working, you know, with some of the other people that I work with in the clinic, but it didn't interest him. His practice is what he loved. And uh, he didn't, he didn't mind that I could take some of the weight off. I mean, cause it's, it's a heavy burden, even if you like doing it. And he was, happy to cut back, you know, to a, a few days instead of five or six days a week. Uh, but yeah, he was a little older at that point. Definitely okay. older than me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at this point you're going full time, but you, you said you also have a bunch of other things. So you're working four days with your dad as an associate. I was working. It, 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 yeah. By that point I was working with him four days. And then okay. and what you said, other things you had, you were still going, were you still running the clinic? What, what were you still I, doing? I, I had come pulled, I had found somebody else to be the director a guy named Robert Wong, who's a terrific general dentist. I knew from my residency program and he ended up becoming the director. And I, I worked there like one day a week for a while. And then I just, uh, I had to give it up because I needed to devote myself full time to private practice. Okay. I missed it though. So now your dad's private practice, though, you said was a mixture of fee-for-service as well as some insurances. Yes. He had been fully fee-for-service, which was really what it was for most of his practice. And then, you know, even though I wasn't working with him yet, we would discuss things. And it seemed that this, oh, there are these, there's this new type of reimbursement. You know, there are these, you know, dental HMOs, which we never got involved in. And there were these PPOs where you would sign on and you'd become participating with, you know, it was yeah. all this stuff that we sort of know about now. Uh, but a lot of people were coming in saying, you know, do you, do you take this? Are you on this? And, you know, we don't like to say no to people. We like to say yes to people. And we didn't realize that it was the beginning of getting on a, uh, on a hamster wheel. It was not to our liking. And so we, we signed uh, at, at we had about maybe six or seven different plans that we were participating with. And it, at, it was 
probably close to about 50% of our, maybe not patient volume, but maybe 50% of our, uh, our money was coming from those types of plants by the, by the mid nineties. Okay. So mid nineties, you're about half, half. So we'll call it half insurance, half private. Yeah. And what, what, uh, what was your transition? What was your, what was your, what was your turning point? When did you say we got to get out of here? Uh, a couple of things. One was when I started analyzing how we were getting reimbursed and real, and I just looked back over five years of records and realized that nothing had been increased at all <laughs> ever, you know, while our, you know, costs had gone up and our regular private practice fees had, had gone up sort of in concert with that looking back over, over the fee schedules and nothing ever increased ever. And, and that started you know, it wasn't just the money because, you know, we had a fairly productive practice. We did a lot of reconstructive stuff. We did a lot of fun stuff, a lot of good stuff, and we, we were doing fine. But that was when I realized that I had no control over it. In other words, you, you know, I, I sort of did this. I said, wait a second. Well, they could do whatever they want, I get, You know, I just, and I looked at the percentage that was dominated by that, and it made me nervous because I realized that they could change it. They could, they could even lower it. I mean, it turns out that they didn't, not for a while. I mean, they're doing that now, as we've all seen, but uh, at the time, no. But it, it made me feel like uh, I needed to take more control of, of what I was doing. Now, they did, you know, they do market free. I mean, they do, you don't have to worry about, I mean, people come to you because you're on the list, you know, and that is actually a benefit of it. And, you know, when some people say, oh, fee-for-service is the holy grail, that's the way you want to do it, that's the only good way to... I actually don't believe that at all. It's, it's, you know, there are people like there's a, you know, a guy I know who does a lot of lecturing on how to maximize your reimbursement from insurance companies. He's a great dentist also. His name's Travis. Cam you must know Travis Campbell, maybe. Yeah. Travis, yeah. So, and I had this discussion with him about, you know, it's just, it's just different. It's not necessarily that the best of the best is fee for service. That's just the way I feel about it. Me, myself, but for other people, you know, there are different, you know, there are different goals and, you know, and things like that. But I think now that people are graduating from dental school under so much financial pressure that mm -hmm. the pressure to perform and to make money quickly is, is very, very, you know, present in everybody's life. And the fact that these, these plans now are actually making more restrictive, you know, everything more restrictive and less reimbursement, you know, I, that's when I started, you know, maybe disagreeing with Travis a little bit and saying that there's really an endpoint, you know, at some point you can't really do decent dentistry like this anymore. I, and I don't want to get, I wouldn't want to get to that point or, or anywhere near it, frankly. What was, do you remember what was the biggest gap between your fees and one of your insurance plans? Do you remember at, at, yes. at the time uh, when you're telling yourself, listen, I'm getting out of these plans. What was the biggest one? Cause you said you started analyzing it. Yes, I did. There was a, it sort of, it was an in-house plan at Columbia University for the teach for the professors and you know things like that, and they they were reimbursing at the time. Uh, my fee for a for a single crown was I think at the time it was about uh, maybe seventeen hundred dollars, and their reimbursement was about a thousand. And uh, and also, you know, I, our fees were never. For Manhattan, anyway. I mean, if anybody's listening to this in other parts of the country, that might even even for you know 15 years ago, that might sound like an insane amount of money. Uh, yeah, I'm upstate New York, going hey, anywhere close to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, you know, it is, but you know, I realized that, uh, number one, it had never gone up and number two, you know, it just, you know, it, it, it bothered me that I had to do the same procedure, you know, for two different people. And it really had to be done. I mean, to me, it should be done the same. And yet I'm getting, I mean, part of me was saying, well, if I can do it for a thousand, what right do I have to charge somebody that much for it? And I started getting this idea that the value of the dentistry, you know, comes from me, from how I feel about it and how we feel about it. And if I'm really doing something that's worth what I'm charging for it, then you know, at some point I can't do it for that little anymore. How and about some of your other fees? How about like your pro fees or anything like that? Like just they were all the- I would say. Okay, I, I would say by the time I finally said, okay, and that was the first one I cut loose. I, I had to get out of this. They were at the time it was probably maybe between a half and two thirds of what my regular fees were. All right, so between fifty okay. and sixty percent is fair. Okay. Yeah. Now, and I still hang on to it, and look, and I look because they, they haven't increased. Even in those last 15 years, it's still the same fee schedule because I know some people who are on it. And you know, now maybe it's you know a third to a half of, of what my regular fees are. And uh, you know, I, I would say, gee, I, I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, so, not so and do what I'm doing now. So you elected, all right, that's the first plan I'm going to cut. What was your strategy? How'd you cut it? What'd you do? So... First, I talked to my dad. <laughs> I said, uh, and he, you know, he got it. He understood it. I mean, he's was very good at math, uh, and he was concerned about you know how the patients would feel about it. And we had a very long term goal for doing this. We started talking about it with patients long before we did it. In fact, probably going on a year before we actually did it, we started talking about two specific things. One was that. And I don't talk to patients about, well, they just haven't raised fees and we just can't. They don't care how much money I'm making. Exactly. They don't care how much money you're making. And frankly, they shouldn't. It's, that's not their concern. What I was trying to impress upon them that these limits were, they were limiting what I could do for them and what I could offer them. It was a limit on what they could have. In other words, I talk to people now and I, you know, I'll talk about, you know, maybe doing a gold crown on, on a second molar. And, well, you know, we don't do that because we can't get. You know, we don't offer that. Uh, and why? Because it's just, it's a, it's a much higher lab fee. It's the same amount of work. And the reimbursements, it's no different than any other crown generally. And, uh, you know, so, so people will not offer it. There are things that never get offered because you just know that the insurance company or the benefits company, you know, is not, is not going to reimburse for it. And that was, I felt that way on my thinking also. Because I really, in some ways, I'm still like a dental student. I okay, I sit down, I examine the patient, I talk to them, we go over their medical, you know, and I, I figure it out talking to them. Now, most of the time, a lot of the time, I don't even know if my patient has coverage of any kind. When I and when I talk to people who are heavily in network, most of the not always, but most of the time, they say, yeah, no, I have to know what they have when I'm trying to figure out how to do what I do. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that bothers me. I, I can't be comfortable doing that, uh, you know, because I just don't feel like it should be a part of that decision-making process. That's well, my opinion. It's a ter- it's a it's a very hard game to play both sides of the fence. That's that's the best I could explain it. If anybody asks me, it's hard to be both. I agree with that. 
that was mm. the hard thing for us. Yeah. Uh, I never really considered just going all in on, on the insurance thing, but yes, you know, you're, you're actually, you're absolutely right. You make, you make a very good point uh, by that. It, that was, it was not just, Oh, the money's too, because you can always find a way. I mean, there's, you can be on that hamster wheel and you can cut a few more minutes off your thing. You can find cheaper stuff, you know, but when you're doing it, the same procedure and getting radically different amounts of money for it. And there's just something that strikes you as like wrong for that. And, uh, and now when I talk to some people who are really extreme or in extreme practices where they're accepting very low fees, I was talking to somebody the other day who was getting basically like $20 a surface for a direct restorative. But I asked her like, what's your regular fee? Like if for a paying patient comes in, you know, like a two surface filling was like 500 bucks, which is way more than I charge. Uh, and I was like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you think about that? Doesn't it seem like if you're doing it for so little, most of the time that you're, it's not fair to you know, charge somebody else that much money for it or, or the reverse. And I'm not, I always try not to be, you know, make it seem like I'm being judgmental because I'm really not. I'm, I'm one of those people that thinks there's so many ways to do this business and do it well. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's not just about what, what I, but I'm always curious to find out how other people do things. Okay. So you, you, you practice it for just, just, just quick review. You practiced yeah. going through the verbiage for for a year and then you implemented it. And I, then when did you analyze the results and, and what did you see? Uh, what I saw, okay. I, we would analyze the results on an ongoing basis. This was something my dad was much better at than me. Yeah. You, you showed him a spreadsheet of, you know, a bunch of spreadsheets and he would immediately get it all organized and figure out what the, what the salient piece of information was. And basically uh, what was happening was we were losing maybe a half to a third of the patients who had any individual plan. Uh, and since we weren't getting much more than half of the money that we sh should have been from these patients, uh, the ones who were staying fell into a couple were it's interestingly, the ones who were staying were the ones that we would have like, if we could have picked which ones we'd like to stay, it, it turned out to be them. Because <laughs> uh, you sort of end up with people who sort of share your, 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 your values about things. And uh, it didn't really affect our income much at all. Although indirectly, our income went up because- I was going to ask yeah, you, I bet your, your income had to go up because yes. you now take out the discount offers and you go- yeah. And it wasn't right. only that. It wasn't only that. What I found was that I was acting differently when I was understanding just that it was me and the patient, and me and the patient over here, and the insurance company over there. And they, a lot of them, still had insurance. Some of them don't. I'd say about fifty percent of my patients don't have any coverage at all, and the others do. But they understood that we were, and even well, let's, let's just do what my insurance covers, and it, it basically became. You know, I'm going to do you a favor, actually. You might not think it's a favor, but we're going to plan this without any consideration at all of what your insurance company might or might not do. And then after we know what you should do or might want to do, then we'll figure out if, if you can make it work that way, if we can make it work that way and get you what you want. And if not, we'll modify it. We're not going to think about that first. I only like to have one way of doing things and having that way of doing it actually made my treatment planning more effective. I was better at figuring out what people needed and better at, because I was doing it too. I would sort of 
and, and you can't just do it only for these patients. You end up with a way of doing things. And right. I was, there were things that I would not avoid because I was concerned they were just too costly or too expensive. And I see that now. There are people who are in insurance-based practices and when somebody, and they, they're used to getting $100 for a composite. And when somebody comes in without insurance and their regular fee is 300, they balk at charging it. They feel like somehow it's not worth it. They, they doubt their value. And, and I, I feel that, but if you feel your regular fee, you're not comfortable telling somebody that's what it is and collecting it, then you got to either get better so your stuff is worth more or you got to charge less. You know, those are the things, but that's a big warning sign to me. When you, if somebody comes in without an, any coverage and you hesitate to plan them completely because, gee, it's so much money. And that, that's not, you know, I still, I have a lot of respect for my patients' money because, I mean, they're, they're choosing to come to me and they could probably go to somebody else, you know, cheaper on their plan. But I don't want to modify what I'm going to do just because I want to save them a few bucks. Let them, let them tell me that that's too much money. I can have that conversation with a patient. That's fine. You know, but let's work backwards from what the ideal thing should be. I think to your point, like, like here would be two different scenarios. Mrs. Jones, 229 is broken. It needs a crown. Well, how much is that going to cost me? That's going to cost you $1,900. And then zero, you don't say another word That's until, right. they, until they speak. Or, or the answer is, Mrs. Jones, you're going to need a crown. How much is that going to cost? Well, you know, there's a lot of work. And, you know, it takes a long time. It's, 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 it's almost $2,000. It's almost like you're apologizing now. Absolutely. Or you're ducking Absolutely. it as opposed to just saying, here's our fee. And no, the patient, no apology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's terrible because the patient is getting, the patient feeds off of your confidence or lack of it. A thousand percent. And you're, you're telling them how to treat you. Yep. Yeah, you, you are. And you're, you're telling them because they want confidence. Now, interestingly, this is interesting. You, you clearly you know, are deeply involved in this, you know, and I, I read stuff that you post all the time. And I always, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this because I, you know, I, I love the way you talk about this. But when patients say to you, and all, oh, my patients, they just, they're, they're cheap. They only want to do what the insurance covers. When patients tell you, I only want to do it if the insurance covers it, sometimes they're telling you they don't trust you. Because they're actually perversely using the fact of whether the insurance would cover it as sort of a, a badge of approval as to whether it's necessary or not, which yeah. is, shouldn't be. But if you have this lack of confidence and you telegraph it, then they might say to themselves, well, you know, does the insurance cover it? And if not, if you're not confident and if the insurance doesn't cover it, why would they pay you for it? Because it doesn't see, they wouldn't even know what needs to be done. When you have confidence in what you think the patient needs, at least they can see that somebody is interested in their problem without sort of hemming and hawing about it. It's yeah. it's tough once you've been in that in that. It's tough, and you and you can't you can't decide what a patient can and can't afford. Right. I mean, I, I practice two of the towns that we practice in. One has one traffic light, and the other is just a step above that, and. You know, there, there's a, there's a husband and wife. I love, love them dearly. And I know I was presenting a treatment plan to him and he was like, you know, sounds good. Let me think about it. And I was like, okay. 
And no, like, well, you know, no explanation. And he came back and he asked me one or two questions. He was like, okay, let's start. I said, okay, here's what it's going to be. He was like, okay, how much do I put half down? I was like, okay. And literally out of his pocket, this is a dairy farmer in upstate New York where the prices of milk have been just squeezed to hell. And and now he's trying to even go into organic farming because (laughs) he can actually get a, a reasonable rate for his milk. But it's just funny. Like if I would have looked at him and said, he can't afford this, let's just take them all out and make a denture. And right. he's a, he's in a partial. Right. He's been that way for 10 years. And he right. is the nicest guy. Absolutely. And, and he know, decided and he decided what he valued. Exactly. He decided yeah. what was important yeah. to him. I'll tell I, I see that all the time. You're you're 100% correct. You're absolutely right about that. I have a patient, uh, a family, a husband and wife. He was is a uh, dean of a of a university, a major right. university. So prestigious. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, you know, and smart guy, nice guy, yeah. makes plenty of money. And he also sent his mother to see me, who doesn't have much money and was sort of a retired educator and she was on a pension, whatever. And when I left my last plan, which the uh, which the, the son and his wife has you know participated with. They left my practice. They sent me a note and said, well, I see you're, you're no longer accepting our insurance. So we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to find another dentist. And I said, well, I'm, I'm really sorry. You don't, you don't have to, I'm, I'm sorry to see you go, but you know, I, I, I understand. Just let me know where you want me to send the records. His mom stayed. Uh, his mom is still <laughs> a patient in my practice. I, I never discussed it with him. It never came up. I don't, I don't even know if he knows, you know, I, I'm not sure how many people know where their parents go to the dentist, right. but could he have, and he wasn't, he wasn't a big kid. I mean, he came maybe two or three times a year and we did base the basic stuff, but in his, and for a lot of people, you know, the insurance participation is just that you, that's just what you do. That's the path of least resistance. You don't even know that it's an option. And, right. and he knew, but still it was like, eh, he didn't value me enough. To, and you know what? And I don't say, that's some, I say, that's fine. If that wasn't what he wanted to choose to, that's fine. I don't have to agree that that's the, the, the right decision. You know what? He might've found himself somebody just as good as me. I, I, no, that couldn't be. I mean, it couldn't be possibly as good as, but you know, but he wasn't going to stay even though he had very minor dental needs. And maybe that was part of it also, you know, that uh, with my practice, but his mom still a patient. And this was, you know, this is the last plan I dropped maybe five years ago. So, uh, so that was interesting. It was not about money. People say it's all about the money. It's not all about the money. It's partially about the money, sure. not yeah. all about the money. And I say this all, when somebody in Idaho or somebody in Nebraska or somebody someplace else, says, you know, they, you're in Manhattan, what I, that doesn't work. I said, in Manhattan? I'm surrounded by people who take every plan in the, in yeah, some was, ways it's harder in Manhattan. I wanted to ask you that because that's so important because I have a lot of friends in the city. So could, because you said in the beginning that you and your dad, he was mostly fee for service. You got in with him. You started to pick up because there was this new way of doing things. So you yeah. added insurance. So you started mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, amalgamate your practice, right? Yeah. Various things. So that's right. now your, your mentality is going the other direction. Do where did that outside influence? What happened to that? What happened to this is the way everybody does things. And in a city like that with 13, 14 million people and dentists, et cetera, by the droves are in network. What was that like? 
was two specific things it was like. The first was that, yeah, there are tons of dentists. So there's tons of every kind of dentist. I, I was never going to be the only fee-for-service that, right. And I was never going to be the only one in network. What, whatever I decided to do, there was going to be at least a few others doing that right. also. Right. But uh, I would much rather take a practice from in-network to fee-for-service someplace where there are no other fee-for-service dentists because the market for it, I mean, it's a certain personality type. It's a certain, it, 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 there's a certain type of person and there's plenty of them out there. And sometimes people just need to be educated. You know, so when people say there's nobody, nobody in my area does that, I'm tempted to say, all right, I'm getting on a plane. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be there in a few hours. Let's, let's talk about how to do it. Because uh, yeah, another, another guy I know down in, where does practice down, in, down South somewhere, this guy, Tommy Murph, uh, do you know, Tommy? Uh, he's, he, he's a, a general dentist. He does a lot of emergency care, a lot of surgery. He actually sure. takes people to Guatemala to teach them how to do extractions. Even if he's not an oral surgeon. And he had a, a hamster wheel practice in network. He tells this story all the time. If you can get it directly from him, that's great. And he was miserable and it's, and he was literally like ready to quit and do just, and he's stopped all of it. And he just it was just him and one assistant doing everything and they just decided to take nothing basically they'll tell people what it is that's what it costs and if they want to that's he had a very small number of patients at first but he also had small costs he didn't have a staff anymore he wasn't there all the time he was literally you know ready to just pack it in and open a coffee shop or something like that and slowly he discovered what was valuable to him i love this i love his story because it's literally that's the anybody says oh it doesn't work in my yeah it can work anywhere because he did it and he had a practice. People would come in, he would tell them what it was going to cost. They paid right there. He doesn't bill anybody, anything. Uh, a lot of it's emergencies, a lot of it's extractions, a lot of it's surgical stuff and uh, dentures, maybe some, you know, some implants now. Uh, great story. And that's my response to, Oh, it doesn't work in my area work anywhere. Now to your question about Manhattan, you know, competition. I, I don't think of other dentists as my competition. You know, I just, I've never been able to think that way. They're, you know, you're all my colleagues and, and there's always going to be somebody out there who's a little better than me. And there's always going to be people out there that aren't quite as good. And I like to learn from everybody. Uh, but I never really feared this. People are going to, if I do this, people are going to, because there are always choices. There are always people who never participate with anything, always people who are in every plan. So that, didn't really bother me at all. It, it didn't really. So let, so let me ask you, right? So you, you, you get out of that plan. So what's your, what's your strategy moving forward? Were you going to do one a year? What, what was, uh, I, I was going to do it as slowly as possible. And then after the first one, when, as we talked about, you know, I, I looked, you know, six months a year later and I realized I was making the same amount of money and seeing, you know, a third fewer patients. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. But of course there was a, it wasn't so easy. Obviously when people, there was a lot of people who left a lot of people who wanted their, you know, so it, it ended up being, maybe it was about one a year. Cause that was, you know, you know, at that point, maybe we were still in like four plans, variations on different plans. And they all, they all kind of combine now. And there are these multi-plan things where you're kind of on, you don't even know which plan you're on or yeah. what fee you're getting. I mean, they've made it so it wasn't that sophisticated. It was a bunch of different companies doing now, I mean, it's, they got every 
aspect of this game to sort of yeah. you know get us in a position well, they of have, disadvantage. They they play by a different set of rules. They're allowed to totally. do certain things that we as dentists can't. Yes. Well, they can they can afford they make you know hundreds of millions of dollars. They can afford the best lobbyists to get the laws made to so that they can you know do whatever they want, and we can't even. We can't even discuss our fees with each other because then we're colluding or whatever. You know, it's, right, it's, right. But you know what? Life's not fair. And I, I'm not one of those, oh, gee, it's not fair people. I just I try to deal with it as best as I can with what I'm dealt. Now, uh, not having to sort of factor in this, this discount, this massive discount that people generally didn't even appreciate, uh, you know, you get you, the result is you end up with a practice with fewer people, but they're people who value you more. And the number of people who stayed who actually appreciated what I had done and felt that even though they were staying and some of them didn't have insurance, they, they were paying the same as they did before, but they, some of them felt that just the tone of the prac of, of everything, of how we were doing everything became much more focused on the patient, you know, much more focused based on, because I didn't have to think about anything else anymore. I don't mm-hmm. even ask there's like a a swear jar, you know, in my in my, uh, but it's not really swear. Anybody who asks the patient, "Do you have insurance?" I, I don't say that. I, I don't permit that question because I don't care if they have insurance. We will ask them, "Do you need a form to submit to your insurance company for re- for payment?" And they may say, "Oh, I don't have insurance." Okay, fine. When you ask somebody if they have insurance and they don't, they think they're it's less something negative. Citizens. Yes. They, they feel, meanwhile, I'm like, oh, great. I, that, that's terrific. I don't have to worry about that. Patients don't hear things the way they do. If you ask somebody if they have insurance, the first, the other thing is they, they're, they're, why are you asking me that first? You, you want to treat and plan my insurance? You know, I, people think these things, especially, and the people who think these things are the ones you want to stay in your, <laughs> in your practice. Right. Uh, so, don't ask people if they have insurance. Ask them, what can I do to help you get your insurance payment? Can I, can I give you a form? We, we should probably put a package of x-rays and everything together. You know, some people who are older, yeah, I mean, we, it's a small office. We'll, we'll send it in for some, for some people just to do the, the paperwork, but we don't accept the assignment and they, they know that they have to pay it. And, uh, you know, but the mechanics of that are different. You know, a big practice, some people will submit it all. For their patients. So when 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 did you go fully? So because you because you're a fee for service practice, I mean you yeah. collect the fee up front, and they get their pet. When did? Oh, uh, you- not always. I, sometimes okay. So if it's somebody I don't really know, yeah, they pay for everything the day that, that we do it. If it's big treatment, you know, we will tell them the fee. And again, I don't tell them what to do after that. You know, if, if I've, I've planned a crown, I've usually done like a preoperative scan. They're going to come back for a crown prep. My office manager will tell them it's you know. If, 1900 or the buildup, it's, you know, 2200, whatever it is. And, and then she knows to zip it, not say anything. And some of them just pull out the credit card and give it to her. Other yeah. people will say, you know, can I pay it like, like a hundred dollars a month? And I said, well, we have care credit. This is a company I'm going to give, and we give them a link and they can look at that. Or I say, well, no, but I mean, some people can pay half of it now and the other half when we deliver the crown. I'm fine with that too, and it's it's personality dependent. There's some people I wouldn't do that with. No, but uh, but but my point is, well, I, yeah. I get it. I mean, not everybody lays out all the money up front, but right. they're paying you. So yes. you you probably weren't like that when you were in all these insurance plans, right? That's right. That we 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 couldn't. So when did when did you make that shift in terms of collect to collect payment? 
reimbursement goes to the patient. When did you make that shift? Because that's a big difference. Well, but but we were mixed. It was combined because people, there were still, even when we were in network, we were never in network with anything. So there's always people who had plans that I didn't participate with. So if it was something we were out of network with, we always did that. Uh, We always collected from them. Uh, But the people who we were in network with, we would either submit it and then bill them for it after the insurance heads or because people want to do that for everything, but with big things. And we know because the insurance, some endless scams, one of them is for major things. They pay 50%. Imagine if your medical insurance did that. Oh, I need a heart transplant. It's going to be $400,000. You know, okay. My insurance will pay 200 and I'll pay the other 200. I mean, that's, that's that's the way it works. Um, But in dental, so what we would do is for anybody who we were in network with, we would collect half of it. You know, we were never, it's a small office. I didn't have a separate person to, 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 you know, you have a, you know, your practice is, is large and you have multiple locations and things like that. So you have people, a lot of people, I, I assume who can sort of make some of these, you know, calls and, and do some kinds of things to sort of, that's an assumption on my part. I have one person running my front desk. She can't spend all the time doing insurance verifications. I don't verify insurance. I, I tell people up front, you need to make sure that your coverage is active and things like that, because I'm going to do what I'm going to do for you based on what you need, blah, 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 blah. But you have to worry about what, if you come back later and you say, oh, my coverage was cut off the month before, I'm not responsible for that. So, uh, so when you yeah. dropped your last plan. Yeah, that right? was when I switched it completely. So how that long was how long ago was that? You said five, six years. How long was it? About five years ago. I'd so say. five years ago. So 26, 2017? Yeah. It was a couple of years. Yeah. A couple of years before COVID. Yeah. Okay. So and what was that like? What was the, what was the vibe in the practice now? And what awesome. can you... <laughs> It was how about, great. How about take us through the financial portion now? Okay. Because at that your, point, your numbers had to change. Yeah. Your overhead had to change. A lot of things had to change in your yes. best, I would assume. But go ahead. Yes. So they did. Um, but by the time I dropped the last one, we were mostly out. So we were really behaving at that point. Right. Like a fee for service practice. Sure. The the few people who were in, we were they weren't really changing what we did that much. We were probably not being as efficient with that as, as we should have been. We were still saying to them um, that we'll submit it. And then once we get the reimbursement, we will charge you for the balances for all simple things. And uh, since, you know, people, we have a lot of the whole, you know, the whole sort of practice is designed around this. I get very, I didn't really get stiffed much. I, I, there was not really a major issue in, in, in my practice, but, uh, but we still did make sure that we collected without estimating what do we do for major things? We'd collect, you know, 50% of whatever we would usually get paid. Um, and if the insurance paid the rest, fine, we took the assignment directly, but everything else, we don't accept the assignment. We mm-hmm. tell a patient we're filling it out and the insurance company is going to send you right. like it's a bad, Hey, guess what? The insurance company is going to send you the money. Isn't that awesome? That's yeah. great. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what was your numbers like, though? What, did you see your overhead go down? Did you see your, your, um, your, your my net, overhead see on, net go up? My office was already pretty small, you yeah. know, my so I'm not going to have a smaller office. I have, a, you know, my staff is very efficient and bare. I have one clinical assistant, uh, one or two, depending. Uh, I have, depending on the day, I have a front desk person and I have a hygienist. That's it. So 
my real estate and my staff, which of course, as we all know, is most of you know our our, our overhead, didn't really change. But uh, my income went up. You know, I mean, my my gross, you know, pr- my production went up a little bit each time I dropped a plan. And the last, when I dropped the last one, uh, it was just incremental. It wasn't a major thing because we did it so slowly. I, I mean, this was a plan that took developed over a long period of time. I was in this for the long haul. Right. I, I see all the time, and you see it too. Well, I know you do on Facebook. People, somebody's complaining about something with insurance, and five people say, "Drop all your plans now. Get out of every plan. Just drop them. Just don't." Which to me is like insane advice, you know, because until you sort of gradually get into it, you don't even know how to think that way yet. And that's a problem because until you start thinking like a fee-for-service dentist, if you start, if you're still treatment planning insurance, but you're not accepting the insurance, that's worse almost that you're in real trouble then. Uh, and no one's going to have the confidence in you to, 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 to bring you in. So the other things to your direct question of, you know, what did I do? I started doing other things that really weren't insurance based. I got more heavily into appliances, sleep apnea treatment, things like that, uh, which I had done before, but I hadn't made it a focus of my practice. Uh, and I started, I started making more slides and more before and after photos of my aesthetic cases to show people. Uh, and I started doing more cases like that also. Now, my bread and butter dentistry, my basic stuff, it was about the same, but I was doing more cool cases, you know, certainly uh, after I was out of the last of the plants. So talk about if you, if you just give us some perspective on, on, on like your gross, right? So your gross went okay. up, would you say, you know, now assuming your, your fees went up too, but did sure. you say, well, did you not, say not, you, my fees didn't really go up. I mean, I, I increased them, you know, you know, a small amount every, right. every year, whatever, based on inflation. And I, they're not high for Manhattan. So right. this is another myth of fee-for-service dentistry that you're going to walk in there. It's going to be all like uh, granite countertops and supermodel, right. you know, right. assistance and right. everything looking like you're on this, this, like a space station somewhere. You don't have to do that. If you're getting your fee, you can charge whatever you think is reasonable. I'd say when I go on online and find out what my fees really are, which is uh, uh I'll remember the website, but you can find out where your fees lie. I'm probably in a, around in maybe the 60th or 70th percentile of private practice fees for Manhattan, which is. But, t- I, but t- taking into account, so let's take a, let's take a window of eight, you know, eight years, right? Yeah. Three years prior and then five years after, would you say that your income, your gross went up 30, 40% and then therefore your net went up even more? I mean. Okay. So I would say my gross and my net both because my because my my overhead didn't really change that month much each time i dropped the plan i'd say my gross went up maybe five or se- five or seven percent uh-huh. you know that's uh that's that's pretty close you know but not over that five much years, that's 25 percent over five yes years. oh absolutely no i'm i'm making my and also i'm working four days now my practice i'm i'm writing and lecturing and teaching and whatever you know usually over a weekend i have fridays off I'm only practicing four days a week, but I'm still grossing and netting, you know, even a factory in inflation, you know, at least 25 or 30% more than I was, you know, seven or eight years ago per year, you know, for factoring for inflation. So definitely more, not, I'm not going to impress anybody with, it's not going to radically more, 
Uh, and probably because I'm also, st I'm still fairly conservative in my treatment planning. I'm not super aggressive and I'm not like, you know, after I don't treatment plan, absolutely everything that I could justify doing I, it, a lot of it's done in concert with the patient, but I would say, you know, the, the overhead didn't really change, you know, so the net and the gross kind of went up in concert, probably I'm going to say five to 7% for each plan we dropped, we, you know, which is, you know, four, five plans over about, you know, seven, eight years, uh, not factoring. I mean, of course, you know, you raise your fees every year and that's, that's happened too, but I'm strictly based on the, the dropping of the plan. Mm -hmm. So more, yeah, so I would have done it if it was the same, I would have done it if I didn't get any more, everybody's always afraid of losing everything. I, I, so, so I you're, doing, you're doing less and earning more basically. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely doing, seeing fewer patients for sure. I'm, and since I don't have to get so many people in the office, I can block out a morning, mm. you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, prepping half a dozen teeth, I, I don't sweat it how much time I'm taking anymore. If, if I got a patient who's a little difficult and maybe I would normally take two hours for this and, but they're difficult. They always need to sit up. They're always gagging. I need to give them, <laughs> well, I'll take three hours. I don't <laughs> care. If I'm, if I'm doing six crown preps in the morning, I don't even have to come back for the afternoon. I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm making, I'm making plenty. Uh, so I always schedule a cushion in there and I don't like to hurry. This was another reason that I, you know, there are some people who thrive on constant activity and the being busy, the, the B word, you know, which a lot of yeah. dentists think is, is meaningful in terms of earning, but, to, but it's not, you know, we all know that, you know, being busy and making money don't necessarily don't necessarily jibe uh, to me. The more time I spend with a patient, the better I understand them and the better I can get them what they need, which often translates into more, more production for me, uh, as long as I'm doing what they need. Yeah. So you've, you've talked about it before. So I just want to kind of finish up on the one thought because yeah. it's, I think it's huge. You talked about like your mindset and your treatment planning, right? And no longer were you, it was no longer Dr. Rubenstein insurance company, Mrs. Jones, it's now Dr. Rubenstein, Mrs. Jones. Oh, yes. And there's an insurance company over here. Yes. How long did it take for you to regain that direct doctor-patient relationship? It was pretty quick because that was what I was really after. You know, I, I, I didn't understand it completely at the time, but that was what my goal was. Uh, I, my goals are all sort of qualitative goals about how I practice. All of them. Now I, you know, I'm, I, I make plenty of money. I, I enjoy being a dentist. It's a good way to make a living. But I go in there because I enjoy having the time and being able to to do this with my patients. So it was quick. It was very quick. And the the philosophical thing that was different was that this triangle between me and the patient and the insurance company. The insurance, the, me and the patient are on the same team. The insurance company is the opposing team, and they have a responsibility and they're supposed to pay for and we'll try, but it's no longer, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to help you figure this out. We're going to, we'll, we'll get with your insurance company. We'll kind of make this work with me and the patient. Now it's, here's what we've decided to do. I'm going to tell you right now, but your well, what about my insurance? I'm going to tell you, all I know about your insurance specifically until we check is they are going to try and collect as much money from you and premiums as they possibly can and pay as little money as they could conceivably get away with your, that's what they want. We will try and get as much for you as we possibly can. We will try and help you do that. But their interest is making money, 
not seeing you healthy. This is a mindset that you don't really see except in a fee-for-service practice where the insurance company is, I, I don't like to use the word enemy, but they really are. I think of them sort of as like predators on the savanna, like lions, like hunting, and we're the zebras, you know, and they're hunting us and they survive by dominating us, you know, and you, you want to be the faster one. You want to be the fastest zebra. You want to be the zebra that's got a little fight in it. So it, the lion comes out and maybe plants a kick on the lion's face and gets away. You know, you, that's the way I think of it as a competition. Uh, you know, so not my, my fellow dentists, but the insurance company. Yeah. The, the, they're, they're trying to, and they're also trying public relations wise to convince the patient. The exact oh, opposite yeah. is true. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That when they send, you know, they'll send letters talking about how their, dent, their doctor is overcharging them or they'll, you know, you could save money going to somebody in, in, in network, which frankly isn't even true, uh, right. you know, maybe pr procedure for procedure. But, you know, I mean, who's to say what's going to be treatment plan? You know, when you have to struggle to get every last little procedure done to even make it, you know, that doesn't lead to good treatment planning. So, you know, so the whole mental thing is, I'm on the patient side and the patient and I are a team and the insurance company, yeah, they're, they'll probably cough up some money and they'll, they'll, they'll help, but they're not on your side, not on our side, they're not on the patient's side. That mentally is where I enjoy being in my practice. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I can tell you, I enjoy being in my office much more now that mm -hmm. I'm not dependent in any way on insurance companies. Okay. I'm a young dentist. Last question. I'm okay. a young dentist and I'm working in a practice and I own a practice. I bought a practice. It's a, it's a PPO insurance-based practice. Talk to me about a pathway out. Why? Okay. okay. So why? Well, well, how? Either the why basically is freedom. It's we also. Oh, it's all about the money. I, I'm not making like massively more money, and you're not going to make massively more money. You're going to have more freedom to practice the way you want, to interact with your patients in ways that you consider professional and positive. And that is the advantage. The disadvantage? Well, when you're in network, you have an insurance backstop behind you, sort of, you don't have to justify as many of the things you do because it's, it's sort of generated by the insurance company. And some people take comfort in that. And that's not... But that's not me. If you're somebody who really wants to have a relationship with your patient where you're really working in their best interest and trying to do the best thing you can for them, then you will be happier not being in network with insurance companies. As for how to do it, everybody does it backwards. You have to believe it first. Unless you believe that your fees are reasonable and that you're worth that, nothing else matters. You will never succeed at it. Say that, say, that, say that one more time because that was perfect. Unless you believe that your fees are worth what you're charging, unless you believe that dentistry is worth paying for, that it's valuable, that you have value, I mean, I, then it's not going to work. You're, you're not going to be able to do it because no one will believe that your treatment is valuable if you don't believe it. And there are many of us who don't believe it. We've been trained not to believe it, that, that people won't value this, that they don't, but people value their health. People want to be healthy. They want to look good. They, I mean, think of all the things that people do. They get Botox, they get breast implants, they get all kinds of cosmetic procedures. 
They value these things. They spend tons of money on it. You were telling me about a farmer who's switching to organic. He's, that's kind of like the, the fee-for-service of, of, of dairy farming, you know, because people value these things and they can value their oral health also. They can and they will only if you do. So the first thing I tell people is that you have to believe it. You have to believe that you're valuable. Otherwise, that's the forget part. it. You have to believe that's it. it. And that's the constant that I see in all successful fee-for-service practices is the doctor, the staff, everybody is together in this belief that what they're doing is valuable. And I believe that myself. Beautiful. All right. Here it comes. Last question of the day. <laughs> you know it's coming. That's a shame. I'm so I'm having so much fun. Here we go. So yes. you get to travel back in time to any time or place. Where would you go and why? Where would I go and why? Okay. Wow. That's where would I travel to back in time? Well, I think if I could travel anywhere back in time, I was always fascinated with, uh, uh, with, uh, with the early days of medicine when we didn't know anything. I've read the stories about how we first even discovered that washing our hands was something that you would, would, would you know, and there were, I wanted to go back in time to the first surgical procedure where anesthesia was used, where they, uh, it was nitrous actually, it was Morton, like the, 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 it was a dentist actually. And the first time that surgeons cut into a person and there was silence, there wasn't screaming and terror, you know, that was the beginning of this path to modern medicine, modern dentistry, modern everything. And that was like, I, I've often thought about this, that it's not that much fun, you know, I guess, but, but I would love to have been to the first time that somebody could operate on a patient and not have the, up somebody screaming in pain. I think that would be the most fascinating thing in the world. I, I would love to meet those people. I really would. So that's my answer to that question. Great stuff. Great stuff. I should just scream right now just to just. To, just to <laughs> yeah, try not to hurt your patients. They're, they're much happier to pay if you don't hurt them. All, all these little things also, right? You know, all the little stuff that you do once you, once you, uh, you know, once you realize that the big stuff is under your control. It's couple not nice, out of your control. A couple of nice pearls right there. Right? <laughs> well, I appreciate you, Mitch. Thanks for your time, man. Not at all. I, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you asking me to do it. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Thanks a lot, Sonny. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot from it. So thanks I again. Hope so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.